they they didn't have enough for their second Lambo. <laughs> exactly. You gotta have two Lambos. Everybody Lambos. has to have two Lambos. Welcome to 30 Day InfoSec, a podcast that covers the last month of InfoSec happenings. This is your host, TJ. And Ryan, let's start the show. Well, I guess we're back here, TJ, for another month of cybersecurity. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I mean, up until now, I mean, I, I don't know how crazy you've gone not being able to leave the house, but it's it's been nuts over here. I uh, know that's just my normal state. I'm, I'm <laughs> Dude, so uh, towards the beginning of the month, I was I saw that Honda got basically demolished by a new uh, virus strain that's roaming around. Did you you look into this at all? Yeah, it looks like it was uh, Ecans or Snake Ransomware, which is funny because it usually targets uh, industrial control systems, SCADA. Yeah, so I, I, guess, I don't know. I don't know if the the malware family just expanded a little bit or what. But it, yeah, the, the all of the factory lines were getting shut down left and right uh, under under Honda. And I guess everybody's you know everybody's not saying, but saying you know it's all state sponsored and whatnot. So I don't know. I don't know kind of what to think about that. Yeah, you know it's bad when they actually have to make a public statement about the the outages <laughs> and. Then people dig into it and realize that it was due to this attack. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess they were only down for a, a day, but well, they were down permanently for a day. But then they they started coming back later in the week, um, you know, getting more towards full production and whatnot. But uh, it, I don't know, it's just it's nuts that a ransomware family is going to take down an entire production facility for that much time. And just think about the money that Honda's losing. Yeah, and you know, looking at this ransomware uh, strand, it does have the capability to like stop processes that are related to uh, industrial control systems. I'm not sure how closely that related that is to manufacturing, but if there are like similar libraries and, and processes that are run to start doing uh, some of the automations for building the automobiles and whatnot, I think that that might have been a factor in there. Other than just you know those systems themselves, just being overrun with ransomware and getting locked up from that. So I, it, it's really interesting just to see how that affected their production versus just sort of locking out data. There's a there's a different dichotomy uh, between traditional ransomware where you see them just locking up computers for just saying, we have your data and now you need to get it back. So here here's what you need to do to get it back versus just literally putting production at hold yeah so yeah i don't i don't know i don't know if it was you know at fault of the of this ransomware or if it was you know just a an it decision of let's halt production while we clean this up type thing uh none of the, none of the articles i read said one way or the other obviously but it just did say it was like all of the uk plants north america turkey italy and japan they, they shut down basically everything for at least a full day um yeah that's pretty pretty crazy man so they even sent everybody home <laughs> yeah yeah there's actually uh, it's, it's really interesting because a lot of this stuff is done behind closed doors so we really only hear about the the publicized information the, the information that they feel uh is pertinent enough to go public uh and you know being an ir i sometimes see behind the veil and a, a lot of that behind the scenes you know could be could be a lot more uh, loose and and damning oh, yeah. uh, than, than before. So it, it's it will be interesting to hear if there's any information, any more information that comes out, and and really how the ransomware perpetrated or, or 
propagated within their manufacturing environment specifically. Yeah, I, I'm just, you know, I'm wondering if, if you know, the new shift with this snake ransomware, if they're going to start shifting into more production facilities, looking at more factories, you know, are, are other manuf auto manufacturers going to be at risk now? Are they going to be targeted, you know, or, or other manufacturing plants? Yeah, and even more scary is that ransomware is starting to shift into data leakage. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, we know from January that this medical care organization had uh, a lot of their data leaked from snake ransomware on PACE sites. Now, this is different from, you know, your traditional uh, leak blogs that a lot of the other uh, more organizational-focused uh, ransomware families would do, but still there's, that means that there is a possibility that these guys could be leaking data. Not sure what data would be in the manufacturing, uh, environment or if this ever spread over to the corporate environment, but it's definitely something to be looking out for in the future. Yeah. So I, yeah, I've noticed actually over the last, you know, I guess year or so the, the, all the ransomwares are going, you know, they're going from just locking out the computers and holding your data for ransom. And now they're doing basically kind of a name and shame game of, all right, fine. You don't want to pay our ransom because you had backups. Well, we're just going to release this all on the internet and, you know, we'll let the public decide your fate. Yeah. Or terrify <laughs> the organization into actually paying the amount that they uh, wanted or more. Right. Uh, and then if that doesn't work, some of them have gone to the activity of auctioning some of that data to the highest bidder and then giving them access. It's really interesting because some of those auctions actually went through, right? And we talked about yeah. one last yep. last month. And we really don't hear anything more about them, which is kind of terrifying, right? Because these ransomware authors and, and, and operators are holding their word of like, okay, you get you buy the data, you get the data, which you know is one thing. But then also like the people who are buying like this data, they don't really they're 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 shadow actors, right? So, like, we don't know who they are or what they're going to so do. There's a yeah. whole, yeah, there's like this whole dynamic that's going on here that has so many implications, and and there's really no telling uh, how far this will go from like a a strategy standpoint for ra ransomware operators. I could see foreign adversaries buying data just to see if they can get extra uh, intel on different companies oh, yeah. right and using that in their operations you could see you know uh, corporate espionage coming from that or even personal espionage like against someone else <laughs> yeah, this yeah. Is i mean there's a lot of yep. options yeah i mean data is data uh, any piece of intel is good intel especially if you can correlate it with something so yeah you know buying this data up and just sitting on it for for a little bit is totally possibilities that are that are going on right now in the background i guarantee it now, to transition a little bit here, Ryan, we've been hearing about the conflict that's going between India and China on the border. A couple of deaths has happened from uh, conflicts and, and, and confrontation that was happening there. Uh, we Now, there's a report that India has banned a list of uh, Chinese app web applications, mobile applications. And on those lists, there's actually a lot of big big apps, some of which I don't even think I knew were from China uh, origina originally. So one of them, TikTok, uh, you have some known ones like Baidu Map, and then you have Clash of Kings and uh, things like We Meet and other, other applications. It's really interesting just to see, you know, how the geopolitical uh, influence happens in the, the mobile market. 
And I think that just because a lot of people use their phones nowadays, it's super important uh, for companies to be able to, to have access to these these markets. And the way that sort of this stuff plays out is really interesting from a from a cyber geopolitical and also technology industry standpoint. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of these apps, you know, they're Chinese-based, but they probably aren't necessarily like, you know, written and, and deployed by the Chinese government. It could just be, you know, a handshake agreement in the background of sharing data or, you know, possibly just insecure configurations. And so, you know, they're able to actually intercept data really easily and quickly. I know there was a, a lot of reports back in the day of um, – Oh man, what was the app with the birds? Um, Angry Birds was actually getting money from, you know, U.S. governments to, you know, keep an insecure configuration because they could easily get data and track users and use, utilize that. So, you know, these clashes between you know Chinese and Indian governments over over these apps is just nuts. I mean, there, there's the whole TikTok thing that's going on right now where they're you know it's copying the clipboard and saving that and possibly you know, shipping that back home to a data center someplace. Um, you know, a lot of people, I haven't actually sat down to, to reverse engineer the app yet, but, you know, a lot of people have spent a lot of time on social media reverse engineering and showing proof of, you know, one way or the other. So I guess, I, I don't know if I've seen full proof yet to show that it's, it's shipping, shipping Intel back home yet, but, you know, the functionality is probably baked into the app at some point. I don't know what's, you know, what's being used though. And a lot of this is like, gray area right because applications in of themselves are so intertwined with our social lives and and our day-to-day -day, uh activity that a lot of the a lot of the functionality that you could perceive as being privacy hindering are is also the things that are you know readily given up by the user for convenience yeah. right so where you are at any given time like that is can be used to track people however it's also used to find where your friends are close by right? with uh, Snapchat, <laughs> connect, and the, yeah. the, the map. Yeah, you want to make sure where you know where your buddies are. Uh, you can also the camera, right? Every app that in, in the world can you can use the camera and post videos of yourself and and live feeds and all that stuff. So like there is all this capability that are that are ingrained into these applications where if you look at the source code, most likely it's going to look like a backdoor because a lot of that functionality is the same functionality that attackers would definitely want. And this is why social networks and open source intelligence has been such a big boom over the last, you know, actually probably from the spawn of that technique, because people are all, all the time giving up their data for convenience. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you could utilize that pretty yep. easily. Yeah, definitely. I know I noticed, I mean, and this is kind of just going into a topic that I guess we weren't even going to get into, but you know, one of the reasons that I like the iPhones nowadays is because they're allowing you to get more granular with the permission sets that you're actually exposing with all of these different apps. So if I want to, you know, if I want to use Snapchat, but I don't want to use my camera for whatever reason, you can, you can disable that functionality. So it can't just be turned on randomly, you know, when you don't want it. Um, or, you know, GPS data, or you can uh, actually one of the new features of the new new iOS is I can give a general location instead of giving my exact GPS coordinates. So that way, you know, they might have a 50 mile radius or a 20 mile radius, whatever it might be, so that they're not getting exact locations anymore. Um, just kind of some of that security features that they're baking in. I, I think that's actually really nice and kind of plays well with a lot of these, you know, <laughs> a lot of these banned applications that they're doing. You know, if, if you're only sending approximate data or, you 
half half of half the amount of data that that isn't exactly giving everything up you know it, it kind of helps with your security a little bit that also came back to bite me because I ordered food from <laughs> one of the food delivery services apps out there and it went down the street <laughs> because it was using my general location and I never gave it my particular address. Oops. I was like, oh yeah, that, that pin drop looks about right. And then so they, they delivered it to a neighbor and they had to walk down the street and hand <laughs> over the food. So that, I mean, there's a give exactly. and take and that's really where the convenience is. Like ideally I'd like them to drop it off right in front of your front door and you're going to be able to eat your food right away. And you know, that's, that's sort of like the, the evolution of our daily, our daily lives right now. But you know, one of my favorite features is geolocation only when the app's open, right? Having that type of granularity is super helpful because why would I want to send my geolocation data to the application when I'm it's in the background? But how is it going to update for most applications? It cool does hotspots in the area. Yeah. I think the only one that you need to have is for your your maps programs, yeah. right? Like where you want to you're doing you're getting, you know, live turn by turn directions and you have, you know, maybe a podcast going on maybe this podcast going on in the background. Uh, you know, you want to have all that stuff in the background and you want to get the updates of the turn here and blah, blah. But other things like that, like Snapchat, those other type of uh, programs, like why would they need to have your geolocation data all the time? No, I'm with you. I'm the same way. I, you know, I turn that off unless I'm using the app, unless there's a specific need for it, which I don't even remember some of the apps. But yeah, unless there's a specific need, there's no reason to be giving up that data. Plus, it's just it's a drain on the battery of the device, too. So, you know, kind of help with battery life a little bit with that, too. What is data and battery life anyway? We've solved those problems. <laughs> At this point in time, I mean, you got you got 5G, you could just send all the data. I mean, while you're exposing yourself to Corona, it's cool. It's cool. Don't worry about it. To sort of wrap everything up here, it's really important for people to understand how mobile applications and mobile security affects us. I think that that is the the, the closest frontier that will hit us civilian civilian lives uh, from an attacker standpoint. You know, crime happens on many different levels. You know, there's the nation state level. There's the industry level, and then there's also the the personal, you know, citizen level where, you know, everyday people get affected. And back in the day, you could see like a lot of these malware types, they start by affecting the, the everyday person. Ransomware used to just be broadly affecting, you know, everyday people. And then it developed into a businesses, and then now they're really targeting industries and really focusing and niching. Uh, in those industries, I think that the same evolution is happening with mobile security. When you see a lot, a lot of that mobile app malware that's coming out for Android and even iOS, a lot of that stuff is really just targeting on a mass scale, uh, and it's it's sort of something that people should be looking out for because I think that that is probably the biggest frontier for getting mass mass cyber operations against you know citizen people right no yep i totally agree so tj what's the one thing that's getting popped nowadays with web applications <laughs> if you didn't think about databases you'd be wrong <laughs> databases are getting hit left and right um i noticed something here uh, it's actually not that long ago here in june where um one of the 
one of the medical supplement websites just got popped. It was about 5 million different personal records that were, that were getting leaked. Um, and there, I mean, <laughs> I just got an email just the other day about, you know, an actual security company, security trails. They also had an unsecured database that was leaking out uh, API keys for all of its users. No, now granted that one wasn't as bad because it, it, there was no PII included in it, but it was a lot of the, you know, the IP address and the API keys being utilized by a lot of security researchers. So like, that's a lot of good Intel for bad guys, at least so they could build, you know, <laughs> basically malware that's detonating from any of these IPs for security researchers. Let's just not have it detonate. Um, so I mean, that, that's, it's kind of a sensitive piece of data. So a lot of that stuff got, had to get reset, uh, API keys had to get reset. And then a lot of emails had to go out for a lot of the PI that got released from medical supplements. But I mean, this isn't a new thing. This has been happening. You know, it happens at least every other week, um, a new website get, gets popped because they left an unsecure AWS database out there floating around with a bunch of, you know, usernames, passwords, sensitive PII information, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, didn't we stall this already though? <laughs> like this is, this is stuff that happened a long time ago, like where Mongo didn't have password protection out the gate. And then they're like, okay, we'll put in security. You guys want to use our database. We didn't know that. Let's get a little bit more secure here. And like, I thought that a lot of this stuff like Elastic and Mongo and all, all these modern databases, which basically you could run and then it basically was open up to the internet uh, if you had it publicly facing. Uh, at one point, they started putting in these security measures by default. Yeah. So why are we still getting this? Well, because application security is hard. So if I don't you know, just open up the database, how's my application going to get data out of it? I mean, that's honestly a lot of the excuses that I hear during, you know, pen testing engagements against web apps. Why is this open? Well, our developer couldn't couldn't get the data over to this, you know, these servers that were being spun up dynamically on the fly. So they couldn't, you know, whitelist IPs, things like that. I mean, there, there is, you know, I, then I have to slap somebody's hand and you go back to it and it's like there's built in functionality in AWS for this exact thing. Like you don't need to be doing this. Uh, so I, it, 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 a lot of it falls down to user education, you know, get better. Man. And so when we talk about like this specific MongoDB uh, insurance marketing, health insurance marketing company reach 1 million records, that's crazy. But the scary part about it, like this is the part that sort of, you know, gets me on unease is that they showed a screenshot of the data set and portions of that were if the person has a health a heart condition uh has cancer or hiv like those are really personal conditions and the fact that they are able to either like the marketing company knows about this is scary one the fact that now everyone knows about this is even more scary yep. right and the fact that like they even like recorded it in any way shape or form and this is not like under hipaa or something along oh, those it, lines it, it's terrifying. definitely gonna fall under a hipaa violation it's just a matter of who's going to get charged with it. I mean, I, I, I guess I shouldn't say who's going to get charged, but how many people are going to get charged because, you know, the supplement company is obviously going to get hit with something because they were storing the data, but they were getting that data from someplace else, you know, where they authorized to get it or where they collecting it passively somehow, you know, based on, on, on questionnaires or whatnot. Um, so I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot of people wrapped up in this. I'm sure. Man, like it's, it's interesting. And the fact of the matter is that this was found with one of the many uh, crawling websites, Binary yep. Edge. And this was as old as, like, it was in May when they found this publicly available. So, like, this information was just 
sitting there and I know for a fact that there's a bunch of groups that go and they are constantly looking for searches for open passwords and open databases. So the fact that if this, the idea of this not being uh, publicly available for that long and like the, the idea of this being publicly available for that long and no one has pulled down this data and stored it and, you know, just kept it for a rainy day is almost impossible yeah i mean luckily this one this one they they, they're not really sure they say several days um but i mean this is this is one of many i mean there's a lot of breaches just like this where they're exposed for months if not years you know in those cases like that data had to have gotten cloned someplace sitting in somebody's computer at their house and it's going to be used somehow you know in in a malicious way man so for your uh notification for that open elastic search was it security trails right what are you gonna do for that is it your api key that's uh divulged or is it customer data or this i mean according to the release they're saying it's just uh ip addresses and api keys all the api keys got rolled internally by security trails um i mean the ip is a little bit harder um depending on you know what service i was using i don't think any of that was accessed by my house but you know a lot of it would be just kind of external jump boxes that you were accessing the data from so it'll just be kind of spinning down assets and and bringing up new ones i mean kind of rotating out ips it shouldn't be too difficult but again depending on on your security hygiene you know that this this could be i mean you could be giving out your home address for a security researcher if if it all could get back to you know somebody at oh yeah so there's pen test uh infrastructure probably probably nation state infrastructure uh researcher infrastructure curious minds interested like so there's probably a lot of infrastructure if they pulled all those ips and profiled them especially the interesting part would be and this would be a really interesting correlation is that attackers that would see like activity against their uh their their yes exactly their infrastructure or even you know the the victims like open database finder like uh, people that have open databases that knew that there were open databases and looked at their web application logs like they they might be able to correlate that activity based on ip address of someone going and checking the api for security trails and then using that same ip address to check the actual endpoints with the known ip data or vulnerability data and whatnot so that's really interesting yeah so i mean one of the pieces of data was you know what the queries were from the ip addresses so being able to look and just kind of search this data and say okay here's all my infrastructure let's see who's looking at it and then just being able to build a list of okay all these guys are interested in me i need to be careful of them (laughs) that that's gonna be that's that's gonna be pretty fun pretty fun piece of piece of data to have have on hand Speaking of data, so it sounds like uh, there was a all-encompassing Grand Crab decryption tool that was published uh, by Bitdefender, and this I think unlocks all of the most recent versions of uh, Grand Crab. Now, Grand Crab released uh, their keys, and they basically shut down business. But it's interesting because it's still a prolific ransomware and there are a, big, a bunch of infections out there to this date i mean you you can't just they shut down the shop 
but all of those different operations that they affected prior to shutting down are probably still in motion. And some of them, some systems probably haven't been decrypted. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, data out there that's probably locked I mean, up it, that yeah. can be unlocked. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's grand crabs huge. I mean, they're, they're expected to get, they've probably got at least $2 billion worth of victims. Um, to pay out in ransom. That's not including the, the people that haven't paid out at all. So, I mean, there's, there's probably tons of stuff that's still floating around out there. That's still encrypted that somebody's probably keeping away on a, on a hard drive, hard disk, hoping to, to get access to the data at some point. Um, so, you know, getting, getting a decryption tool or getting those keys is going to be, you know, hopefully, hopefully beneficial to those, those, those victims. Now it's crazy because they made so much money that they were just like, you know what? we're done. We're going to retire and, and sail off into the sunset. Oh, and by the way, here's all your data. We're done with it now. Like that is how much money they made. They didn't even want to keep it for a rainy day. Like there was so much money that was made in their operations that they didn't even need, feel the need to have a rainy day fund that they could just say, okay, if we ever need to turn this back up, we have all these things. We still have our keys. We can all, we can, you know, offer, offer decryption still and, and make money on the trickle. Like they literally were just like, we're done. We've done what we needed to do. Check out. I mean, now, now is the real good question. How good of criminals are they? Can they really walk away and stay away with their $2 billion? Or are they going to get interested and come back? And that's when you always get caught. Well, the interesting part about that is that there's actually uh, Talos intelligence found that there are some pretty strong similarities between uh, the Grand Crab code base and the Sonido Biki or Revol ransomware. Uh, so they're already back. <laughs> I think there might be. Well, I mean, maybe maybe some of the people that were involved in the Grand Crab uh, operations might be able to. I, I, I mean, they might be they might be able to transition over into the new group. Uh, maybe some of the lower level components of of that of that operation. Maybe uh, there's there's a lot of I think there's a lot of speculation there, right? And I'm not sure what that really means because think about it. Like a lot of the functionality of ransomware is similar, so inherently, if if even if they did not copy the code directly chances are the code would be similar just because like every piece of ransomware tries to delete volume shadow copies. Yeah, like, and and so functions. like that type of stuff will have similarities. And if they're, you know, looking on Stack Overflow, they're most likely looking at the same articles. If they're learning from like a general guidebook or, or methodology off of, you know, dark forums and whatnot, like there there's going to be inherent similarities in the programming style just because of that. And also regionality i mean there's speculation that these are all a lot of the high tier uh ransomware actors are east european based so the regionality of it means that they might have the same uh same upbringing from a, a coding standpoint so there there could be similarities from there strong similarities sort of leans towards you know code for use right um but that would be something probably to watch and I, i'm sure even if there is like super strong similarities between these two malware families. I bet you that it's more of the lower tier uh, operators within the group that probably moved over. And just like with, you know, 
large companies like Facebook and Google and all that stuff, like where their engineers move from place to place. And yeah. some of that, some of that knowledge moves over there. I think some of that is in an effect here. Yeah. A lot, some of the people that probably didn't cash in on, on quite a, as big of a chunk of the 2 billion. So they're still looking for some more money. Yeah. You know, they shifted over to a new yeah. group. They, they didn't have enough for their second Lambo. <laughs> exactly. You gotta have two Everybody Lambos. has to have two Lambos. <laughs> so, did you hear about the Ripple 20 vulnerability? You know, there's a there's a about 19 different vulnerabilities in this low-level TCP IP stack um, by Trek. And basically, it's hitting a huge chunk of the Fortune 500 corporations uh, just because of, you know, a lot of everybody's using this, this TCP IP stack within their devices. Did you hear anything about these? Yeah, I was reading this article, and it's, it's sort of scary because... When you think about how prolific that library is, hundreds of millions of devices, and most of them are IoT, like large swath of these are not going to get updated, and companies aren't going to spend thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars to upgrade the actual products that have these on, like that are using these underlining libraries. So there are going to be problems. Oh yeah, there's going to be tons of problems. I mean, the devices are being used all across the place, uh, you know, industrial control, airlines, you know, all over the place. So there, there's a lot of POC code out for at least two of the vulnerabilities. Um, so that's going to be quite interesting and see, you know, see if anybody actually is updating. Um, but yeah. I wonder if there's, if this is going to open up a lot of uh, IoT pen testing opportunities for companies. I mean, they're gonna the POC code is going to be something that a lot of people probably won't know how to operationalize. Um, but I, I'm sure that they're gonna want to know if they're vulnerable or not. And I am almost positive that most companies don't segment their IoT infrastructure from the rest of their business. I, I can confirm most companies do not. I've seen it <laughs> over and over again, actually. Um, I mean, they're oh, it's just a light switch, or oh, it's just a, a you know a, a printer. It's, it's no, no big deal. Um, so yeah, there's tons of segmentation there on your network that's just never never comes into you know even thought uh, when you're architecting th things like that. So yeah, I mean, you you control an IoT device, you can easily hop in and do do you know other nasty little things. So I think the only saving grace here is that because it's going through the IP protocol, a lot of these this vulnerability, uh, I think the IDSs and IPSs are going to play a really important role here. I hope that IDS and IPS companies are looking at IoT traffic and and building signatures for that because I think that that's going to be the only thing that can at least enumerate any activity that's happening based off of this, because I really don't think that there's going to be a lot of ways to stop this vulnerability from being used. So you're either going to have to segment vulnerable assets or have a really fast discovery process where you're able to detect uh, usage and then respond immediately. Yeah, this attack. I mean, definitely, it's a, it's a, obviously a remote attack, so it, it is going to be extremely hard to stop outside of updating your devices. But I mean, who updates their IoT devices nowadays? Not not many. Um, I I have I did notice as soon as this got published, a lot of big organizations were you know on high alert and, and pushing out updates quickly. But you know those medium and smaller organizations, those people you know, either don't even know about it or are going to be a lot slower to update. So th this this vulnerability is going to be floating around for a while. 
I should say. Yeah, and even with the updates, like I bet you they have they've missed like that one that one device that no one knew (laughs) was there. And it's in the closet somewhere and it's just gonna be that that vulnerable device that will be the the entry point for the attacker because remote code execution inside the environment is basically like opening the front door and having allowing anyone to come in and start operating they just you know that's that's pretty much the the coup de grace for for attackers and we see this over and over again yep definitely do it it's going to be it's going to be a fun vulnerability uh, i'm looking looking forward to seeing how this progresses as as time goes on with it so let's transition over to another story that i was reading about over the uh the last month and this actually came up towards the end of the month but it was a really big story so Trustwave, uh in their efforts to do threat hunting for some of their clients started identifying a intelligence tax software which is required by a chinese bank to uh, be installed for them to be able to operate within china uh, that was able to deploy a hidden back door that had command and control capability. You're not suggesting the Chinese government is behind this, are you? Who knows? <laughs> I'm. I'm. This is all speculation. And and to be fair, I've looked and I've looked and I have not seen any type of statement from U.S. government or any other government for that matter. Uh, but uh, the Trustwave uh, reporting has the Spider Labs Trustwave reporting has been pretty comprehensive on this. They released a really large PDF. And this software surreptitiously deploys a payload that is basically a backdoor. It has all the functionality of any type of backdoor that you'd want. And it is basically required. It's trusted software that is required by the people that use or, or interact with this Chinese. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, so that's really that's, big. That's uh, quite um, speculation you got going on there. <laughs> I noticed that there was a lot of warnings and labels within the trust wave report. You know, that we're not, we're only reporting on things that we can 100% confirm because, you know, obviously they don't want to become a target of said actor. Uh, so I, I mean, I can only, oh man, just crazy. And it's just brazen of somebody to, you know, we're going to use this required tax software. Like everything's pointing right at who is the bad guy here. <laughs> now, I will say that they're just reporting. Yeah, as you said, they were just reporting on the capabilities of that payload. No one knows what that payload is actually for. I mean, it could be for updating or something along those lines. I mean, it's highly, highly unlikely. And they do say that this aligns very very closely with characteristics of a APT campaign. Uh, So it's really interesting. And also this is software that, I mean, for the most part are only going to be targeting foreign companies that are operating in China. So theoretically from, from a let's put on our speculatory hat and theoretically from like a nation state standpoint, what would they have to gain from this? Right? So you have a company that, has foreign ties. These are foreign companies that will be interacting with the Chinese Chinese ecosystem. Uh, and so, what what would we what would what would they want to have from that? Well, 
you have tons of financial information, information about their companies. They have control of an actual kickoff point for a legitimate kickoff point within those different countries and, and, and foreign foreign countries and uh and i think those industries that are involved in that so like there's a lot of like footprint that a, a nation state actor would probably have and would like yeah. from I, that it's like basically like having an insider threat inside a country because you have this legitimate company that's done everything on the up and up but then there's you know insider yeah i mean any kind of trade negotiations or you know if a company's going up for sale and they have ties to china obviously because they're doing business there i mean that gives them a one-up on <laughs> you know what's that price point going to be how can we undercut people tons of intel going in and out especially as as you know as you said all these organizations are going to be doing business in china that's a scary thought right and i think that understanding more about this would have would be pertinent and it really does put me a little bit at a pause that you don't really hear anything outside of the trust wave reporting so there's no governmental um ties but i did look up the 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 company uh, i think it's icino corporation yeah, that uh, a, that has distributed this software and they do have a lot of sec documents so there are a lot of companies that allegedly or most likely have that tax software installed uh but there's more information <laughs> and as of june 28th it looks like trustwave found that the a new payload was dropped by that software that actually deletes that backdoor agent uh or backdoor capable agent golden spy uh and it effectively works as an uninstaller <laughs> so problem solved oh, right yep we're all good here why are we even talking about this again i mean <laughs> so i've definitely seen this capability before within malware of we're bringing in legitimate software and kind of you know if there's maybe like a a, a deal hijacking or something that you can take advantage of so let's you know let's drop this legitimate binary on the disk that no one's going to think anything of and then we'll drop like a dll next to it that does all the good stuff that i want um so i mean having that capability is definitely yeah d this just seems very suspect that it's all pointing back to required software <laughs> directed use by these this organization it's just it, that very suspect to me yeah yeah it's really really interesting and honestly there there are you know even if it was a malicious actor the corporation might not even be involved. It might have been a case of, you know, a malicious insider that planted source code in there, right? And there's, because it really is just like this small snip of code that allowed that new payload to be dropped. And then that new payload was a malicious payload. Uh, so that would be something to, to follow there as well. So I'm really interested in hearing more about this. And I want to sort of have a little bit more of an official channel that, uh, reports on this because i think that with with the intelligence community i i feel like there would be more more uh, information that could have been enumerated about this because trust wave is basically just reporting on what they see from one viewpoint which is really good yeah uh research i think that it was solid and they enumerate the capabilities of this very very well but there are you know geopolitical uh got it implications for this and i think that that having you know that 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 stage set and understanding from like a, a federal or you know geopolitical standpoint might be a little bit more uh 
enumerating for for at least myself. Oh yeah, totally agree. I mean, you got to be very sensitive with this this kind of uh, this kind of intel. Yeah. Now to round out the last story that we're going to cover for this episode, I wanted to talk about a point of sales malware, uh, Alina POS malware that. Uh, was discovered using the DNS protocol to smuggle credit cards uh, from the victim's environment out to a command and control server. Now, I know that uh, Ryan has a lot of opinions <laughs> about this, so I'm going to let Ryan kick it off here, and then I can chop him down. I mean, first of all, we just need to, we need to be looking at the DNS protocol to be smuggling out stolen credit card data. Obviously, I get it. I understand that, you know, we don't care if we're caught. We're just going to get as much data as possible, which is great. And obviously, it fits with their objective. But that is such a loud and obvious attack that someone at this organization should have caught this semi-quickly. Like with DNS, DNSC2, anytime you use this stuff, I mean, it just amplifies the amount of DNS traffic going out of a network. So that right there should be an indicator. Then it it also... I mean, DNS text records are not super, super common to be utilized all the time. That's how these this, this data was getting smuggled out. And again, why aren't we alerting on all these basic concepts? Like, come on now, t- tell me, TJ, why is why is it not happening? Because locking, right? Like that well, is a extremely big problem that we have, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Like we like it from a from a IR standpoint, it is the best day for an IR analyst if they have the appropriate logging to to get to the bottom line. And I will tell you this: if you're looking at DNS data, how long do you think you'll take for if you even if you have the DNS data, how long do you think it'll take? for the company to realize that there was something weird going on with their DNS. If, if the DNS data is there, you should already have alerts for this because, you know, smuggling out data and utilizing DNS as a C2 communication or as I said, data smuggling, this is not a new technique. I mean, this has been around for a while now. I mean, it's built into half a dozen different, you know, C2 frameworks that are open source on the web. So, if if the logging capability is there for it, I should already have alerts based on this. I mean, I, I, but what what would those alerts be? Because if the C two is new, right, and then they're doing they were using subdomains to to smuggle out this data, and they were using they were encoding those subdomains so that basically it would it would be non legible, like not really like uh, text that was going into that subdomain. It was just sort of like a code that was going in there that they could decode and get the information from. So that would be almost impossible unless you already knew about the attack, which, you know, if they change their DNS, if they change their domain name often, then it's almost, it's almost impossible to spot other than the spike in traffic. So spikes in traffic, abnormalities should be very easy to alert on. You can build those, before you even know the attack is happening. I mean, just like you said, if I have, say, we'll go with just base 64 encoded subdomains, I mean, that right there should flag an alert. That doesn't look like anything that I've ever seen in our network before. Plus, why the hell would it happen anyways? I mean, no, no one's going to remember a base 64 string dot whatever dot com. 
Have you looked at any of the CDN strings? Those are all illegible. Uh, like the thing that. is, <laughs> we're doing CNS queries all the time for these small, like minute, like CDNs and, and uh, data stores and all that stuff. That like I think we're immune to a lot of that. And if there's a spike in traffic, you know what that means? A ton of data already left. And how much do you think the attacker cares after they already got the data that they need? No, I mean, I, I agree with you to that point. Yes. I mean, the spike in data, obviously a lot left, but I mean, that should be able to hopefully alert you to say, I need to stop this before even more data leaves. Yeah. I mean, from, from a managed services standpoint, I think one of the most important things you can do is get DNS data. I think it's super important, especially with a lot of the uh, security protocols uh, that are put in place for HTTP. Like now you really can't inspect, and, and in the future you won't be able to really inspect, you know, internet traffic as easily. So the key marker is going to be some of that DNS traffic, but you're going to have to have, you know, a DNS provider that is on top of their stuff in order to really make sure that you're covered because it's a treasure trove of information and domains are so ephemeral nowadays because people are making, I like, I, I have a ton of domains myself. And so like, if you just extrapolate all of the people that have a ton of domains and then all of the domains that are out there, like you, there's just a large corpus of data that uh, is a, that these security companies have to go through yeah i mean yeah the more you log the more data you get to look at i mean i i see the point i just i feel like you know utilizing dns for any kind of you know offensive capabilities here is just really it's a it's a touchy touchy piece to be using because I, I feel like every time you're using it you should be getting caught fairly quickly see and now I'm, in my opinion, I think that you they will understand what happened to them easily. But stopping it and stopping DNS, that can have a lot of effects on things. I mean, when you're doing when you're talking about like the ability for, you know, an API to get sent to another system and you know it relies on DNS to route that API to the appropriate web application, like that would be, you know, business damaging. Mm-hmm possibly because they're blocking that access so like blocking on dns is a really really hard thing i mean there's only a couple companies like uh you know quad nine umbrella all those guys that like will that will offer blocking for known malicious dns queries and will throw back like a you know black hole or something along those lines when when you try to get to you know a domain that's known to be associated with the malware but I feel like that's a really, really hard, hard uh, proposition for a company if they don't use one of these services. Well, I mean, you either use the service or, I mean, you could do this internally as well. But I, I, I see it both ways. I just, I've such shied away from using DNS for so many reasons because you, you get caught so quickly. Now, yeah, I could probably still maneuver and get out of the way, but I'm trying to I'm trying to run ops where I'm as silent as possible for as long as possible. Um, and so I guess maybe it's just two different ways of thinking. I'm not financially motivated in that sense of just needing those those pieces of data as quickly. And so usually my financial motivation is staying quiet for longer. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So I think this wraps up our June episode for 30 Day InfoSec. So let's talk about some of the events that are coming up in July. On July 24th, we have one of my favorite events, HitB, and they're going to do an online event, which is called Lockdown. Uh, so that will be July 24th at 10 p.m. And some of these times are, you know, late because these are uh, European. So the time time zone shift um, gives you the chance to actually watch stuff later on at night after work and whatnot. So that's actually really helpful. And then the last one is going to be uh, VOPCDE conference, which is online every two weeks. And in this one, it's going to be on July 29th, and that's going to be at noon. And that's every two weeks on a Wednesday. So those are the events we have for July. And with that, I think we're going to close out the show. Thank you very much, Ryan. And thank you, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, TJ. It was fun. Thanks for joining us on 30 Day InfoSec. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also connect with us at 30dayinfosec.com. 